I'd like to begin just a minute or two before, so that at the time we begin. My name is uh, Subodh Pandit. I'm from originally from India, a physician, so I'm not a pastor or uh, a philosopher or a historian. What I'm going to describe to you is the results of a 20-year search that I went through. And when at the end of those 20 years, I had a lot of information in my hands. So I spent the next five years in trying to put them together. And when I put them together, I realized that there was a way in which you could logically think this through. And when I finished that, I realized it was not only an answer to my prayer, but it could possibly help somebody else. So I put it together as a seminar. The seminar runs about seven and a half to eight hours. We have only one hour. So what I will do is give you just snippets and examples of how I went through that search. So we have, uh, like I said, just about one hour. We'll take a break. 15 minutes, I, well, I hope I don't take all those 15 minutes. I'd like to leave some period for questions, if we can, okay? Otherwise, we will go through that. Uh, I've, uh, it, it takes a little something to put it together. The hardest thing when you're putting something is like this together is, what shall I leave out? <laughs> Not what to include. And so let's, uh, yeah, one more minute. Two more, two more minutes? Minute and a half, okay. I come from India. India is a very diverse country, diverse in language, diverse in dress, diverse in food, diverse also in religion. India has the largest Hindu population in the world. Over 800 million Hindus live in India. People don't realize, but India has just about the second largest Muslim population in the world. We have more Muslims in India than in the Muslim countries themselves. Buddhism was born and cradled in India. Christianity came to India according to tradition. One of Jesus' own disciples. Thomas, if you go to the lower part of the Indian Peninsula, you will find some monuments to St. Thomas. So Christianity came there in its nascent, earliest form. Jainism, Zoroastrianism, all these. So in that crucible, I grew. That's where I grew up and did my medical studies in India before coming to this country. So in that crucible, when you're growing up, your shoulders rubbing day to day with people of different ideas and philosophies and, and concepts and religion, all kinds of questions come up. And so I began a search, like I said, lasted 20 years, and I'm going to give you just a gist and a few snippets and examples of how I went through the search. Now what I did in this seminar which I usually present in secular university lecture halls. 
That is my ministry. I go to secular university lecture halls to present this. And I've been to five continents now and have presented it in many lecture halls. And I believe that uh, when we finally go through some of this material, you will realize that there is something there that we need to know which will stabilize us. And also that God has spoken in a certain way, not maybe in writing one book, but placing evidence here and there such that any honest inquirer will find it if he must seek for it. With these words, we're just about time now. Let's get on with this one-hour presentation. You know, the first thing a person does who wants to inquire is go to the stuff and start reading it up, but that is not what you should do. The first step in becoming an inquirer is to ask yourself, have you prepared to become an inquirer? Because we need to check your mental attitude and also create an atmosphere of an inquirer. Why do we need to check our mental attitude? Because ingrained and blended in all of us, everyone on earth, are three attitudes that we can bring from our brain to the study, and these three attitudes are not bound, they don't have boundaries. So you can flip from one to the other at any time. What are these three attitudes? The attitude of a skeptic, the attitude of a believer, the attitude of an inquirer. What do I mean by these three words? Now remember, I'm not talking about a person, I'm talking about the attitude that's in all of us. For example, a skeptic will dismiss the report prior to thorough investigation. Oh, I don't want it. A believer will accept a report prior to thorough investigation, and an inquirer, he will hold verdict till the investigation is done. It is extremely difficult to be an inquirer. You can do an inquiry, but to be an inquirer is extremely difficult, and here's the reason why. I'll give you an example. Is there anyone here who is not a Christian? No. So I'm speaking to one type of group. Uh, in all my presentations, there's usually a mixture of atheists and agnostics and Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and the whole works. So, well, I'll just treat you as just a mixed group. Yes. The reason why is because, let's say we are looking at one question. Is there a God in existence? Is there no God in existence? There are two proposals here. You know what a, who an inquirer is? An inquirer is one who looks at these two proposals and says in his mind, either of them will do as long as it's the truth of the matter. So if I'm a theist, a one who believes there is a God, I must drop my theism and say that if there is evidence that there is no God in existence, there is nothing supernatural, then I'll become an atheist. And similarly, the atheist must drop his atheism and he must become an inquirer and say, well, if there is some evidence of the supernatural, then I shall become a theist and a believer. But it's extremely difficult to come to that point unless you're really honest. Everybody is not called to be an inquirer. 
I believe I was. I was called to be an inquirer so that somebody else will hear about my inquiry. It is not easy to become an inquirer. Here's another three uh, set of uh, statements about these three uh, attitudes. A skeptic will focus on the question. All he wants is to raise a question. Whereas a believer will focus on the evidence. All he wants to establish as fact. Whereas an inquirer focuses on the weight of evidence. And the weight of evidence will show which side he must take his thinking to. With these words, I said it was difficult to become an inquirer. It's difficult to remain an inquirer while you are searching. Because we always want to bring up the facts and the evidences that will suit us. So to do that, you need to create an atmosphere. And here are the four things you need to create an atmosphere. Humility is number one. Without humility, your search is doomed. Number two is honesty. Number three is calmness. And number four is respect. Now, we do not have time to go through all of those. I usually, in the seminar, go through each of them and get a response so that we, at the end, we are all four. But I'll just touch on one. The second one, honesty. Honesty is an extreme short supply. Especially in the religious world. And I don't care whether you're just a commoner, or whether you're a mullah, or a priest, or a monk, or a bishop, or a pastor, or anyone there. We tend to dishonesty for the simple reason that we like our point to be established. We don't like the other person's point to be established. And so we deal with a grade of dishonesty that's always there. I don't want to burst your bubble, but look, there are very few honest people even in this room. There are many times when you have spoken to something that you know yourself that cannot be established in your own mind. But you will still say it. Because you're supposed to say it. And since we are all Christians, I can tell you what I call it. I call it the Sabbath school syndrome. You ask a little kid in Sabbath school, who is the biggest hero? I know, Jesus. Ask the same person on the play field, who is the biggest hero? Spider-Man. What happened? We know what we are supposed to say. But when you go through these things, you must deal honestly. And so I realized it ran very deep in me, this dishonesty. What I did was make a definition of honesty and try to apply it. And here's my definition of this, of honesty. The willingness to give credit to a point or an argument, no matter who brings it up, even if that acknowledgement might destroy my previous standing. It has teeth in it. So when you look at something, you must let it affect you. And I call it the wow factor. When something impresses you, you've got to say, wow. Even if the other guy gets the point for you to say, wow. That's okay. You are not after your own belief. You are after truth. And there's no use <laughs> establishing your point if your point is wrong. Wow. Are you willing to say, wow? <laughs> if, you, if you hear anything that is really wow, how big are pearls? About that big, right? You know, the largest pearl was found in the Palawan Island in the Philippines. It was nine and a half inches long, five and a half inches in diameter, and weighed 14 pounds and one ounce. Thank you. At least somebody of you said wow. 
I just wanted to know whether you'd say wow when there's something <laughs> impressive. <laughs> Shall we try another one? Pi, 22 over 7, can be expanded. And it comes to a, a series of digits that are quite random. And so they test people's memory by checking how many digits can they remember. Do you know what the world record is? It's held by a Japanese, Tomoyori Hideyaki. He recited the pi over a period of 17 hours and 20 minutes, and the first mistake he made was after the 40,000th digit. Thank you. <laughs> now we're ready to go. Now you're ready to be honest. So if there's something, <laughs> something that really impresses you, go ahead and say, wow. If it is not so good, you can curl up your nip and say, ah, I don't know. And if it's downright useless and, you know, just absurd, you can say, bang it off. Who wants that kind of stuff? Okay, are you with me now? Let's get on. The first question that we need to address, is there a God in existence? How will a rational mind accept such an idea? Now, that was not my first question. My first question was about different religions. But as I looked at them, I realized that this was something that I had to do. Call it the great divide. God, A, is non-existent, fictitious. B, God is relevant and he is factual. Why is this debate going on for generation after generation, century after century? Because the debate is structured faultily. The debate right now is, consists of two columns of argument. Column one, mine. Column two, yours. So I'll pile up my evidence and shoot down yours. And he does the same. He or she does the same. The fact is you can pile up a lot on both sides. And you have a whole lot of holes on both sides. You can shoot them down. And that is why this debate is bound to be inconclusive if you have only two lines of reasoning. But we are an inquirer. And an inquirer, I, I realize, needs more than two. And so I, and I did what, I, what is called a pan process. Pan means going across boundaries. Pan also means sifting, like a pan for gold. Pan also happens to be the first three letters of my family name, Pandit. Pan process, it requires four columns of argument. None of them are yours and mine. You look at both the proposals, pros and cons for both. Now you have four columns of argument. On one side will be arguments for A. That A was, there is no God in existence. And then with that will be arguments against B, which says there is a God in existence. And then you go to the other side, arguments for this statement, there is a God in existence. Arguments against A, there is no God in existence. And you, when you've got all four, then you see which side the pendulum swings. I can't go through all four because there's no, not enough time. I'm going to show you or, 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 or bring to you just two, one from each side. All right? Here goes. Arguments for A. That means what are the arguments that would buttress support the statement that there is no God in existence? None. Why? Because it is a statement in the negative. A statement in the negative. There is no God. It's not saying what there is. It's saying what there is not. And therefore, it's a negative statement. A negative statement is valid 
when and only when you have exhausted all the possibilities. You choose your jurisdiction. And in this case, our jurisdiction is the entire universe. So it's called a universal negative statement. Universally negative. Why are there no arguments for that? Give you a, give, let me give you an example. Suppose I, there are 10,000 lakes in the United States. How many lakes? 10,000, thank you. I, I don't mind it being interactive. Okay, how many lakes? 10,000. And I stand up here very boldly and I say, there is no lake in the United States named Now, how many lakes should I be familiar with? Not 9,999? No, by the way, nobody said wow. is a real lake. It is the longest name in the United States. And it is a lake up in upper Massachusetts. It's in the Native American language, which says, I fish on my side of the lake, and you fish on your side, and nobody fishes in between. <laughs> but that's a real name. Thank you. You said, wow. All right. I need to know how many? All 10,000 names. And only then can I say there is no lake by the name of, uh, are you listening? Yeah. All right, then name, the name of the lake. <laughs> No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> the name is Char Gogogog Manchaugogog Chow Banagan Gamaug. Now repeat it at least three times ahead. Oh no. Okay. Now let's take this and apply it to our statement that we made there is no God. Now, if there is a God, He should be somewhere. Location. Let's take one aspect location. Are you familiar with every corner of your town? Every closet, every attic? No. How about the country? No. How about the whole world? No. Have you been to the moon? No, there's a dark side of the moon. How? You could have set up office there. No, you don't know? How about the sun, Milky Way? How many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy? 100 billion at least. Have you been to any of those? No. How many? galaxies are there that the astronomers have guesstimated for us. 125 billion. Thank you. <laughs> At least somebody is listening. 125 billion galaxies. How many of them have you been to? Even if you had checked out 99% of the universe, you would still have one billion galaxies still to go. At least. At least. Wow. So, now, how can you say there is no God? Yeah. Furthermore, look, if I can walk, don't you think this God also can walk? So if I went to look for him in the living room, he could have gone to the kitchen. Now, I'm being just absolutely honest and just down to earth, right? So if I went to look for him in Toronto, Canada, he could have gone to New Delhi, India. Now watch what I'm saying. Therefore, for me to say that there is no God, I must know every nook and corner of the universe, which is called omniscience, and I must be everywhere at the same time, which is called omnipresence, and that these are the attributes of 
So to say that there is no God, you must either have the attributes of God or become a God yourself. The tangled knot is evident. There are no arguments for a negative statement. Let's go to the other side. Now there are more, okay? By the way, sometimes some of you might want to take notes, and that's good. But I do have a book at the back. Everything that I show, and all my six and a half, seven and a half hours of PowerPoint, which is over 400 frames, is in that book. Unfortunately, I cannot give it out. I can only, not sell, but if you give a donation to my ministry, which is a one-man ministry, you can have the book at the back. It contains all the arguments that I've stated. All right? Anytime. Every 20 minutes or so, we'll take a break. And if you need to, you can go and follow it from there. How about the other side? Option B. I have chosen one argument. And the argument has to have a base. And the base is this. If there is no God in existence, then the theory of how we came about is one that is prolonged over geological time scales. 10 million years, 100 million years. The universe is supposed to be about 15 billion years. This earth is supposed to be about 4.5 billion years. So it takes geological time scales. All right? If there is a God in existence, he brought it all together, bang, one day, for instance. Let's look at just one thing, rock, granite rock. If there is no God, 10 million to 100 million years, and if there is a God, one day. Is there any evidence? Polonium-218 is a radioisotope. What's a radioisotope? It's a something that gives off radiation, and it gives off of itself. So it becomes less in amount, all right? And so the rates of radiation are spoken of in terms of half-lives. How much time will it take for that material to become half its amount if it gives off its radiation? The, the half-life of uranium-238 is 4.53 billion years. The half-life of the subatomic sub particles like the hyperons, the mesons, and the baryons is 100 millionth of a second. Polonium-218 has a half-life of three minutes. When it gives off the radiation, the radiation has an effect in the substance that surrounds it such that when its radiation is over, it will leave a very characteristic halo in the substance. Polonium-218 halo. Now, suppose I want to catch a bubble of water bubble that's in a glass of water. The bubble is going to last only for three minutes. But I want to catch it such that it is in the middle of this glass now which wants to become ice. So I've got the bubble in ice. How long should, I, should the water take to turn into ice so I catch the bubble? The bubble is going to last only for three minutes. So how long should it take for the water to turn to ice to catch it? Three minutes or less. So polonium halos in a substance means that the substance was formed in three minutes. 
polonium halo is the unrefuted evidence for Earth's instant creation. An exceedingly large number of polonium halos are embedded in granites around the world. Distinctly implies that our Earth was formed in a very short time, like three minutes. You know, if you are an inquirer who shed your theism away and shed your atheism away, this you will have to say, wow. We have repeatedly challenged the Academy, the National Academy of Sciences, to publicly explain where the polonium halo evidence for creation has ever been scientifically invalidated for over 15 years. They have refused to even try Dr. Robert Gentry. Do you know Dr. Robert Gentry is here yeah. in our ASI? Yeah. He is in... Uh, Booth 223, you can go and talk to him. I've spoken to him more than once. In fact, the last time I spoke to him was on the 14th Street in Washington, D.C., when he was supposed to present his findings at, a national press, at the National Press Club. Unfortunately, none of them ever came, so this is true. <laughs> I live in North Carolina. I drove all the way from North Carolina thinking, wow, that's a good time. Let me ask these people and let me ask him for some questions. I had some questions. And when I landed up there, none of them came. They call it a bitty little evidence. But do you know, every granite piece on Earth has polonium halos. The gigantic El Capitan of Yosemite National Park, the Half Dome Rock, the Rock of Gibraltar, any piece on Earth. And granite is supposed to be the crust of the framework of the Earth. Formed in how much time? Three minutes or less. So that's an indirect evidence that it's not 100 million years. Somebody just did that and it was formed. With that, I stopped there and said, okay, there is, there is something out there, something known as supernatural. Does he have a name, an identity? What could it possibly be? So I began the search to find out what could be his name, what could be his identity. That was my search next. I found two groups of people when I spoke about this. Look at all the claims being made out there. And these two groups of people were number one. I know there are lots of claims out there, but there's only one correct way. <laughs> That's mine. It's called exclusivism. I've got it. On the other hand was another group which say, don't worry about the total big number. All of them are only different paths to the same final goal. It's called pluralism. More than one way. So I had to look at that. Where did this idea of pluralism come? I looked at the writings and I'm going to show you the writings from five of these religions. Number one is here, a statement from Hinduism I, Krishna, you'll notice by the dark skin and the flute, I am the goal, the uphold, the master, the witness, the home, the shelter, and the most dear friend. I am the creation and the annihilation, the basis of how much? Everything. Everything. The resting place and eternal seed. Let there be one scripture for the whole world, the Bhagavad Gita. Let there be one God for the whole world, Sri Krishna. One hymn, one mantra, one prayer, the chanting of his name. Quran 2 and verse 255, Surah 2 and Ayat 255 is known as the coronation verse of the Quran. Allah, there is no God but He, the living, the self-subsisting supporter of all. His are how much? 
all things in the heavens and on earth, his throne that extend over the earth, he is the most high, the supreme. How about Buddhist scriptures? This Lord, Gautama Buddha, is truly the Arhat. He has reached the highest stage that anybody can reach, fully enlightened, perfect in his knowledge and conduct, well gone, world no unsurpassed. Got that word? Leader of men to be tamed, teacher of gods and men, the Buddha, the Lord. How about this? For thus said the Lord who is who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth. I am the Lord and there are 20 others around the countryside. No. no. I am the Lord and there is no other. Christianity, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Did you notice something? There is not a single claim out there which ever says, I am a way and the other is also an equal way. Every religion, at the heart of every religion, is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not, and accordingly of defining life's purpose. Every religion at its core is exclusive. That's a statement by Ravi Zacharias. So it is exclusivism, not pluralism. It's not found in the writings. Somebody made it up, and therefore it has to be called a private personal opinion. That's all it is. It's not found anywhere else. Therefore, it's exclusivism that's right. But we're not out of the woods yet. There's more than one who is saying that they are exclusively right. So we're still there. So what are the options when more than one claims to be the champion? Options? All are correct, which is absurd, illogical, unreasonable. Are you with me? You can't have two who are saying the same thing as being the only way. All are wrong. That's logical possible. Maybe all are completely wrong. But how can I say all are wrong? How can I say even one is wrong? Because to say that something is wrong is to say that you know the, the truth. I don't know the truth. I'm only a seeker, an inquirer. How can I ever stand up and say, Muhammad, I, I heard you talk about, you know, getting that thing from a angel Gabriel on Mount Hira. But you know, I think you're all wrong. Or go up to Jesus and say, I heard the Sermon on the Mount, but you know, there's something quirky about what you're talking about. Can you say that? No, you have no authority, you have no position, you have no knowledge. I, I had none of them. I could not say that they were all wrong. I was left with only one option. There is only one that is legitimate and correct when it says it is the only way. I struggled with this for a long time. If there's anybody here who can have any other option, let me know and we will discuss it. Are there any other option that you can have? Either all are correct, all are wrong, or there's only one way. I couldn't go to the first two, I had landed up with the last. There is only one way, which one is it? How do you compare apples and oranges? I'm gonna take a break for just a minute or two. If you have any questions, just write them down and we'll, we'll look them up. And if you want a book there at the back, like I said, please, if you can put a little $20 in the donation box there. That's the price. It's a private printing of that book. I did it myself. You won't even see an ISBN number because I did a private printing. So you can have that while I just have a quick drink of water.
Ravi Zachariah. I don't know him personally, but he's <laughs> he is um, he is based out of Atlanta, Georgia. He is also from uh, India. Uh, lived in Canada, and uh, many of the things that he talks about from India, I know because I, I too lived there, in those towns that he speaks about. One of the most eloquent orators I've heard, and he's agreeably or arguably one of the top most apologists today in the world. One more minute and then we'll carry on. About 1975. Give me my background. Yeah. Religious? Christian. Um, Christian. Christian. Yeah. Once you become an inquirer, you don't be, you you stop calling yourself anything. <laughs> yep. So I used to pray to the God of Truth because he didn't have a name at that time. All right, let's carry on. How do you compare apples and oranges? You can't. But you can choose sometimes. And nobody can fault your choice. For instance, if the apple is bright and shiny and juicy and sweet and the orange is rotten and has worms in it, then even if you love oranges, you'll have to choose the... But did you choose between an apple and an orange? Yes, you did, but also no. You did not choose between an apple and an orange. You chose between rottenness and, and freshness. Because if they were switched around, you would have chosen the orange. Are you with me? So also with these religions. You cannot look at the doctrines of the religions and compare them. There is simply no way, there is no standard that you can take the doctrines to say if it meets the standard, it's okay. If it does not, it's gone. You can't have that. But like we looked at the apple and the orange, you can have factors that are attached to the doctrines. What I've called as para-religious factors. These factors are not really religious. They are for instance, historical pieces on which the religion is based. I directed my attention to 10 questions that I was going to ask, 10 para-religious questions. I was going to ask all five religions. I chose five. Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, and Christianity. And I asked 10 questions. Three of them I addressed to the writings and seven to the flesh and blood founders of these religions. And I simply threw the questions out and gathered the information from their writings or from a source that was friendly to the particular religion. And then did not try to question their responses. I just put them side by side. We can't go through all ten. We'll go through four just now. Not in detail, but at least quickly. The ten questions I'll, I'll mention. The first question is, what kind of literature is the writing? Is it folktale, legendary, mythological, or historical? Then, does that writing allow me to test it? Or does it expect me to just swallow it? Because it's written. Number three, what is the top feature of the writing? Then we go to the founders. What is the highest claim the founder made for yourself? 
Number two, what is your message and mission in a nutshell? Number three, did your life match your own teachings? Number four, what is the story or the circumstances around your birth? Number five, what is the length of your ministry? Number six, what is the story or the circumstances around your death, that means the end of your life? And number seven, which is number 10 of the questions, what happened after you died? So we're going to look at four. Number one is what kind of literature are you? Ancient writings are divided into folklore, folktale, which is one, legendary writings, mythological or historical. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I'll just mention the legendary and then you will get an idea of what I'm driving at. A legend cannot be formed in the generation of the event. It requires changes to come into the story generations after the event is finished because then there are no eyewitnesses to challenge your change. It takes centuries to make a legend. For example, I'm going to show you an example of Gautama Buddha. At the beginning of the Christian era, the transcendental nature of the Buddha became more and more pronounced. See, before this, he was an ordinary man. Born here, died here. But now at the, end, the beginning of the Christian era, you know how long it has now uh, taken? 500 years. 500 years, slowly the transcendental nature is being described more and more. And then when you come to one of the most important pieces of Mahayana literature, there is not much of the man left in the Buddha. He is now an exalted being who has lived for countless ages in the past and will continue to live forever. Mahayana literature, now it is 700 to 1000 years later. Then the legend has been formed. So when you look at literature, ancient literature, you look at two characteristics. The periods between events, the period between the actual story and the oral tradition that was formed of that story, then the period between the oral tradition and the first written statements that were made. So now there is a manuscript, and then the difference or the period between the first manuscript and the earliest manuscript we have in our hands. That is number one, periods, the gaps. Number two is how many manuscripts are there to back that story? Because if there are just a few in a little town, then somebody could have gone one night to those few and just changed a little bit and inserted whatever he wanted and nobody would know and you have corrupted the text. Whereas if you have a large amount of manuscripts spread over a large geographical area, then it is difficult to corrupt the text because you can't go to all of them. Are you with me? All right. So a legend cannot be formed in the same generation as the event. So when you look at all these literature, and we don't have time to do that, I'll just give you a gist. When you look at these five uh, pieces of ancient literature, two of them come out to be pretty close. The Quran, which was put together at, in uh, 656 BC, uh, AD, within 32 or 36 years of his death, so in one generation, and the New Testament. The New Testament, which is the earliest writings of the New Testament? We think of them as the Gospels, right? No. It, no, New Testament. It's the letters of Paul. 
The Pauline letters are the earliest writings we have. And remember, Paul came into the movement later than the disciples themselves. So the oral story was already set. They have found tombs. And the coins around the tombs have been dated before 41 AD. And the inscription on the tomb says, Jesus ascended one. Jesus is God. Less than 10 years, they've already stories already made. So the story was formed at the time of the event. There is no gap between the event and the story. And there's hardly any gap between the story and the first writing. I compared that with what we consider as historical pieces of literature everywhere, in any university. Caesar's Gaelic Wars. It was written here in 100 BC, and the earliest manuscript we have is 900 AD. This gap of 1,000 years, nobody knows what happened during, to that story, and yet everybody acknowledges it as historical. Herodotus history. 1,300 years, Tacitus Annuals, 1,000 years. Look at that, and people don't question that at all. What, are, what about the New Testament? New Testament was written about here. Look at the gap and look at these. Look, and if you look at those coins that I just mentioned, it is less than 10 years. If you can swallow 1,000 years, then why are you gagging with 10 years? We are being only inquirers, right? That's it. If, you, if I as an inquirer can swallow 1,300 years and say it's historical, then I should have no difficulty at all in saying that the New Testament is solidly historical because there's, just a, there's no gap. The only ancient writing in which there is no gap. Two, number of manuscripts. Caesar's Gaelic Wars is based on 10 manuscripts worldwide. Herodotus' history on eight, Titus Daniels on uh, has 20. The champion of Greek literature is Homer's Iliad with 646 manuscripts backing it. Suppose I tell you that the New Testament is backed by 664. Will you be willing to say wow? <laughs> Are you ready? It is backed by 5664. Thank you. 5,664 Greek manuscripts. If you take the Latin and the Arab, Armenian and the Arabic and the, all of them, do you know how many manuscripts back the New Testament? A total of about 24,900. In real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events, the document, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. F.J.A. Hort says this, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writings. How about John Montgomery who says, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no document of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. No document of the ancient period 
it does not say no religious document. No document, whether it's the Mayan or the Sumerian, whether the Babylonian or the Chaldean or the Egyptian or the ancient Indian or the Chinese or the Romans or the Greek, you put them all together, there's one piece of literature that stands out solidly historical. It happens to be these 27 books known as the New Testament. Nothing can equal the reliability of the text. And if you are going to question that text, you must question all of ancient history on earth. That's the strength of that piece of information. So as an inquirer, I have no option but to take this book known as the New Testament as a historical piece of literature. Oh yes, there are, there are kind of weird things written out there, but you cannot call it legendary nor mythological. You can throw it off if you want to, but you cannot call it mythological. You can question it, but you can question it only on historical documentary evidences, not just tossing it off as a mythological piece of literature. Then the second one is the message and mission. What I did was put the whole message and mission into a nutshell, just two or three sentences, and see what happens. Hinduism, the message and mission was to show the way to ultimate truth, which is merging of the human atma or soul into the super soul or Brahman. So we're going to show you the way to the truth that is there in existence. When it comes to Buddhism, for enlightenment I was born, for the good of all that lives. So Gautama Buddha's mission in life was to say, look, I was enlightened under the ficus tree in Bodh Gaya in eastern India. I was enlightened. Let me show you how to become enlightened. Islam, for Muslims, it, the Quran, is the infallible word of God revealed to the prophet Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. So Muhammad's mission in life was to bring the word of God to the human race. Arguably, that's the only writing that actually can be called God's word because it contains only the words of Allah. Every other literature has other words, but the Quran is only the words of Allah. Judaism, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, is the words of Jehovah God, which if a man does, he shall live. So what does Moses whole mission in life, bring the statutes and the commandments and the rules and the judgments of God and you keep them and you will live. That was his mission. When you come to this man, Jesus, he uses words that nobody else used ever. I am. If the Hindu master said, let me show you the way to the truth, this man said, I am that way and the truth. If Gautama Buddha stood up and said, let me show you how to be enlightened because I was enlightened, this man said, I am that light that enlightens. If Moses said, look, I'll show you the way to life, this man said, I am that life. Every one of the different founders of the religion brought a set of rules and philosophies and doctrines. This man brought himself. That is the fundamental difference that you see when you look at the message and mission. In every other religion, 
you are told about what to do. This religion says, do you know me? Can you see the difference? All of them said, let me show you the bridge that will take you from your present existence to that other that we all look for, nirvana, heaven, paradise. Let me show you the bridge. This man came and said, I am that bridge. There is nobody who ever claimed to be identical with his message. Every other founder brought a message. This man said, I am the message. If you take away Muhammad, you will still have Islam. If you take away Gautama Buddha, you will still have Buddhism. If you take Vyas and Valmiki, you will still have Hinduism. If you take away Moses and Abraham and David, you will still have Judaism. You take away Jesus, you will have nothing in Christianity. We are talking about the message. Everyone brought a message. This man said, I am the message. It was in keeping, really, if you look at it carefully, if you're an inquirer, how come he said that? It is because of his previous claim, which I had already asked. Now, we didn't go through it, but I asked, what is the highest claim you make for yourself, Mr. Founder? And of all of them, this man was the only one who said, I am the son of God. Everyone else said, I am prophet, or I am a seer, or I am an enlightened one, or something, all in the human realm. This man said, I don't belong to the human realm. I came from there where ultimate truth resides. And from there when I came, I brought the truth in me. And that's why I could say, I am the truth. Nobody else can say that because you live down there and you've got to look for it, you've got to search for it, you've got to study it. I didn't have to do any of that sort because I brought it in me. I am. Birth, number three. Hinduism, there were multiple authors, no specific founder. All the authors were revered individuals born to honorable parents. In Buddhism, Gautama Buddha's father was Suddhodana. He was a king. His mother, Maya, was a queen. He was born here in Lumbini Grove in a delightful grove with trees of every kind. They had all kinds of festivities because a prince had arrived. It was an honorable beginning of his, of his life. Judaism, a man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi, bore a son, and she saw that he was a beautiful child, and he became her, which is Pharaoh's daughter's son. Pedigree was good. Later on, Levi became a very important tribe, taking care of the tabernacle. And before that, he was Pharaoh's daughter's son. Royalty. Islam. Muhammad was the posthumous son of Abdullah. His mother was Amina of the tribe of Quraysh, clan of Hashim. Quraysh was not the biggest tribe, but very important because Quraysh tribe took care of the Kaaba, which is now in Mecca, the most holy site of Islam. So pedigree, good. The beginning was solid. When you come to this man, after his mother, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child. And they laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. His birth story has two characteristics. He was born in abject poverty. The only founder. And sometimes when we send Christmas cards, you know, they, they draw that nice manger. And we kind of romantic thing, you know. 
so neat, deodorized with those donkeys and those and those uh, cows, very, uh, very obediently on their correct places. It was not that way at all. And if you look at this one here, look at the halos around their head. There was no halo. <laughs> hey, he was born in a dirty, stinking stable with the cattle. Not even where people are born. And worse, he was conceived out of wedlock. The only founder conceived out of wedlock. Now in today's you know, liberal world, care, people care two hoots about that. But not in first century ultra-conservative Palestine. No, sir. You were born that way. That clearly showed that there was a moral stain not only on you, but on your whole family. And that moral stain came there because you did not have the favor of God. That is why you are like that. Everybody knew about it when he went to the temple. The elite, the top brass in the temple looked at him and said, You, you are coming to teach the people morals and ethics? Shall we exchange something of our pedigree? We were not born of fornication, you. You know what the words that are written down in Jewish, Jewish genealogy? So-and-so, son of so-and-so, and then gone down, down. Remember Joseph? And you know the next words? They don't even mention his name. They just say, so-and-so, bastard son of an adulteress. That's it. That's how he is the birth story of this man. In poverty-stricken circumstances, and unquestionably morally stained. How did he form a revolution? Big question, right? But there is one more thing. Why did they call him illegitimate? Because they could not identify the father. Neither in his village, nor in any other village in Palestine. And you cannot identify the father? Two theories. She really committed adultery. Or what is written in the book? His father was supernatural. That's why he was called illegitimate. So the very fact that you call him the B word tells us, well, B word, okay. But why do we call him that? Could it be, could it be that the father was not of this world? Now we've gone through three, so the fourth one is left. The fourth one I go to number 10 of all my questions. What happened after death? You see, every other founder, when he died, somebody else took over. And the movement carried on. Except with this man. He said, I, I'm right there. What? You know, if you're a Christian, that's fine. <laughs> but if you're an inquirer, hey, you're trying to tell me that somebody rose up from the dead? 
give me another story. And the first response of an inquirer is to mythological account, put it in the trash bag. Yes. What, uh, what reason can you give for believing that kind of a story? Look, I'm an ER doc. And sometimes when these ambulances come in, you know, the sirens and all that, and they come in, and they bring the patient into the room, I have to make sometimes a diagnosis of DOA, dead on arrival. I have never ever told the family he is dead, but do you think you can come back in the morning? <laughs> I might inject some little life into him, you know, by tomorrow morning. Or how about three days? <laughs> never. So my inquiring mind cannot accept this, that a man was dead for three days and then rose up again. Give me another story. But my first question that I asked of this whole series was, what kind of writing is that scripture? And of all that is there, this one is the most reliably historical piece of literature. So here I am. Can't believe it. Can't throw it out. Are you with me? It's historical. Somebody saw. So I can't believe it, but it's written down there. The only thing I can possibly do is to examine the writings and find out whether there is any historical evidence. And you look at both sides. What is the story? In, if he did not rise up, what is the story? Well, there are some. He didn't die, number one, or he didn't rise up. The disciples stole the body. We have no time to go through those, but you can look at the, the text and find out if there's some credibility to that kind of a story. On the other hand, is, if the story is true, are there any evidences that can impress me 2,000 years later? Are there? I'm going to show you just two. Number one, the New Testament is the only ancient writing in the world. Listen, the New Testament is the only ancient writing in the world where an author was at the scene. There is no other ancient writing that's historical in which a person can say, I saw. In other words, there were eyewitnesses. Today, an eyewitness that has written down a statement is one of the strongest evidences that you can table in a court of law. This is what we find in the New Testament. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He who has seen has testified. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled. There is not another single piece of ancient literature that can have these kind of words in it. 
the very kind of evidence which modern science and even psychologists are so insistent upon for determining the reality of any object under consideration is the kind of evidence that we have presented to us in the Gospels regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, namely the things that are seen with the human eye, touched with the human hand, and heard by the human ear. This is what we call empirical evidence. Catch it. The best attested historical piece of literature has in it a written record of an eyewitness. You cannot beat that. Not only that, in a court of law, there is something, things that the whole system lays weight on as strong evidence. And one of them is known as the deathbed confession. If there is a confession made when you're facing death, then the jury and the judge usually takes that. Now, if there is one, two, and three deathbed confessions, all saying the same basic story, there is no judge or jury on earth that will overturn that statement. Are you with me? The resurrection story is completely founded on deathbed confessions. Peter was crucified upside down. James was stoned to death. Matthew was killed by the sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword. Thaddeus was shot through with arrows. Bartholomew was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Thomas was killed with a spear. And Paul was beheaded. And not a single one of them ever recanted of his story. They were not slaughtered one swipe. All of you gone. No, they were killed one at a time. Here you go. Two years later, you. You want to be like that guy? Tell me the truth or I'll kill you. He rose. You'll go to jail, spit on your face, slap you, beat you up, kill you. You do what you want. I saw. And I am willing to testify, I saw him before he died. I saw him die. I saw him after he died. Now you can do what you want with me. But that is my story. And gone. How many deathbed confessions do you want before you are willing to believe that they might have told the truth? There's a little chance, right? Here is the best attested ancient piece of literature in which there is a story by an eyewitness who stands his ground regarding that witness even in the face of death. There can be no higher psychological evidence that this story is true. Lord Darling, the Chief Justice of England, said these words. On that greatest point, the resurrection, we are not merely asked to have faith. In its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. You know, there are very few people who actually believe this. We say we believe, but we don't. 
there are very few people who believe there is a God in existence. Even in the Christian world, even in the Adventist church. We are ready to say that there is a God. We are ready to say that we believe that there is a God. But we do not believe. We believe he's a superman who can do a few things that we can't. There are very few on earth who believe he is God, not superman. For if you believe he is God, you have no other option but to just fall flat on your face before him and ask him, what can I do to be on your side? Not, can I do this and can I get away with it? Or oh, this is a bit too hard for me. No, our response is very different. There was a, um, a convict in a jail in England and the chaplain went to him and spoke to him and said, hmm, let me tell you about Jesus. Told him the story. Went through it till he came to the end. And then this convict looked at him and said, do you really believe that story? And the chaplain said, yes. He said, if I believed that story, I would crawl across England on broken glass to tell it. You know what I mean? We say we believe. Catch yourself sometime. So we come to the ending here. Indeed, taking all the evidence together is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. And that is the B.F. Westcott. By all rules of evidence, his bodily resurrection from the grave can be adjudged the best proof fact in all of ancient history. That's Henry Morris. By all rules of what? Evidence. Not philosophy, not tenets of belief, not religious talk by all rules of historical evidence. It was Benjamin Warfield of Princeton University who said, faith is a form of conviction and a conviction must rest, necessarily rest on evidence. For if you have no evidence, it's just blind belief. And when I went through this and I realized what God had put there, and I've shown you just a little bit in one hour, I realized that this God was very understanding of us because we're going to ask a lot of questions like I did. And he has placed the evidence enough so that an inquirer, remember what I said who an inquirer was? A person who would just look at the evidence and that's it. An inquirer would come to the conclusion that, well, let's look at all the 10 that I did. All the 10, okay? The New Testament is the best documented ancient writing in the world. It is solidly historical nature. The top feature of writing is beyond human capability. I've not looked at that in this seminar, but that's what we do. Only the Bible's challenge, another thing we didn't do now, only the Bible's challenge is open and clear and it fulfills its own challenge very impressively. And the challenge is called predictive prophecy. In fact, it is a challenge that the Bible itself throws out and the Judeo-Christian scriptures known as the Bible is the only ancient writing in the world that has ever thrown out a challenge. Do you know that? It says, test me out. And here's the test. 
I'm going to make a prediction, and you can see whether the prediction came true or not. You can see it. I'm not going to make it up. No other writing has, a, has that kind of a challenge. Jesus dared to make the highest claim. He was the son of God. He did not just bring the truth, the way of life. He was the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the only one in whom the theory of teaching was matched by actual practice in life. That's another fantastic study. No founder ever matched in his life his own teachings, except for this man. Therefore, the only one with the right to say, follow me. Jesus' ministry was the shortest and yet had the greatest impact. The only founder to be born illegitimate. And yet, that very word suggests that his father might have been God. The only founder to die the shameful, violent death of a condemned criminal. The first converts to Christianity were Jews. A Jew in first century Palestine in AD 31, when, when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, there were three things that they had to be convinced about. Number one, he was condemned and sentenced to death by the highest religious authority in the world, the Sanhedrin. He was condemned and sentenced to death by the highest civil authority in the whole world, the Romans. And he was condemned and sentenced to death by the highest authority in the universe, Jehovah God. Because in their own Torah, it was clearly written in the book of Numbers that if any man was put to death by hanging, you will know that he was under the curse of God. How did a Jew ever become a Christian? It was because of one stunning event on a Sunday morning at the tomb. That is the only explanation that anybody can give. That there was a Jew who knew these three things and still became a Christian. And there were priests who knew these things. They knew the Torah from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Deuteronomy and still became a Christian because of that one stunning thing on which the church has built its foundation. The first message that the Christians ever talked in, in first century Palestine was not, look what a message I'm bringing, not what a teaching I'm bringing, not what a philosophy I'm bringing, but look here, there's a man who died and rose up again from the dead. I know it myself. And we better listen to him because his words might be supernatural because this event is supernatural. There is no other founder that can ever come anywhere near close. And so the tenth one, the only one to go in the domain of death, the most feared enemy of humankind, break the bands and come back as a conqueror over death. So my final conclusion of this first part, which we'll end with now, Jesus and the Bible are totally unmatched when you make a comparison. They have the highest credibility, therefore they provide to mankind. Remember I said I was looking for one way? The only way. I rest my case. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Any? Thank you. In, um, in the secular lecture halls, I've always received a ovation. Oh, okay, go ahead. But I'm going to tell you something. When they do that, I put my hands up and I say, who are you clapping for? Oration? 
good information. Hey, there was a time when there were 100,000 people in a stadium and Kip Kino from Kenya <coughs> was running the marathon. This was going to be back-to-back -back marathons. Nobody had ever done it in history and he was going to win. He came in two minutes before his nearest rival and as he came into the stadium, 100,000 people stood to their feet. Were they clapping for the timekeeper? Were they clapping for the judges along the way? Were they clapping for the host nation that had, you know, hosted the whole Olympics? Who were they clapping for? The champion. Reserve your claps from your heart for the champion. For Christianity can be described as a standing ovation to a champion. Any questions on any of these things? Yes, sir. Your question really is trying to put those two to uh, as separate kind of well, and look in, in one sense I did yeah. but if you go through the whole seminar you will find that there's more than one time when I have referred to that as Judeo-Christian because nobody will be ever able to identify Jesus as Messiah without the Old Testament it's impossible God knew that. That's why he gave the Old Testament. And he always wants us to find evidences. And that's why the early Christian church was strong. There was Apollos and there was Stephen and the others. Now everybody is not called upon to do that. But they could clearly be apologists and show very clearly that this man meets the fulfillment of that prophecy and those writings. And so Christianity is Judeo-Christian. We look at the New Testament as historical because we take that as a, a piece which is a different story but do connect it with the old because the person here is also the person there. You're very right. The basis, we agree. But the interpretation of what there is in the Torah and in the prophets and in the writings are different. For one part in which we really part ways, the New Testament says that the, that the Torah and the historical writings his, uh, and the prophets 
pointed to somebody and we found that somebody. And there are Messianic Jews who recognize that. That they, it, Isaiah 53, a real Orthodox Jew would love to take it out of the Old Testament completely. Yeah, and I've met them. Why? It is just too hard to describe any other person on earth. So we are dealing with uh, a place where we are together and yet not together. Yes, it's at the, at the place where you apply it. Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. That's a theory, hypothesis, it's possible. But the moment you say possible, you have to agree that you're saying nothing. <laughs> yeah, anything can be possible. I'm not bothered about what's possible. Tell me whether it would really happen and show me the evidence. And if we do show the evidence that this was borrowed from there and didn't have anything of its own, Fine, but look, it is, I will agree that it's possible. But you look at the claim, and once again, as an inquirer, I had some rules that I followed. Number one, I'm not going to question the claim, I'm only going to put it side by side. So I'm not questioning really your claim. When you put it side by side, one of the claims says that the origin came at the origin of the world. That's the claim. So if it was a thousand years before, hey, I'm not worried about that. This made a claim that whatever information came as truth came at the foundation of the world. Historically, maybe you can say, but I'm not questioning the history that this, for instance, Christianity, I'm not questioning the historic claim that the, that the Christians make that their information came first because it came with the words in the beginning God. And they identify the God as Jehovah God whose name really came out to be Yeshua in the New Testament. So in between, fine. They, they, the Hindus also claim that there's a creation, right? In the Rig Veda, they clearly showed who was the creator, Brahma. They also have a triune god, you mentioned it, Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. Shiva is the destroyer and Vishnu the preserver. And it's Vishnu who comes down to us as, as avatars or incarnates, of which Krishna, which we mentioned, is the eighth, one of the most well-known so we do have a lot of similarities. Similarities mean nothing in one sense. Because I can show you similarities between two organisms, complex organisms. I can show you 100,000 similarities between two complex organisms. One's name is Adolf Hitler and the other is Mother Teresa. Are they the same? Even one 
listen to this sentence and you can challenge me on it even one irreconcilable difference will negate all the similarities even one and you find a bunch of them between all of these religions there was one more hand up way at the back yes Like I confessed, in my observation, everybody is not called to be an inquirer. But everybody is called to weigh the words of the inquirer. I believe uh, the invitation to me he, to come here to, uh, for this ASI, I was commissioned. There's somebody here who needs these words. That's why I came. Everybody is not called upon to do it. Your friend who lost, we will say lost faith in the Bible, right? That's only half the story. It's impossible to lose complete faith. If you don't have faith in this, you have to have faith in something else. So let's look at that something else and find out if that something else has enough evidence as the Bible has. You cannot live without placing your faith somewhere. You have to have that something to guide you. So if you don't want the Bible, fine. Tell me what it is. And let's look at it honestly. As an inquirer. So you know it's still safe to become an inquirer. Because you will shift from one to the other. What happened most likely was, like it happens in this debate between evolution and creation, you don't want it and so you go one way or the other. It's not based on evidence. Uh, we can go through a lot of that. Yes? How old is the actual oldest historical document? You said that the Bible, the, the New Testament, is the most accurate. But how far back do we actually have historical documents of any kind in any place? That's a good question. I can't really, I can't really answer that in the terms of all the literature. But we do know that some of these, uh, uh, when you use the word document, let's use the word manuscript, because that's the thing that they you know, talk about. The writing by hand is called a manuscript. We do have ancient manuscripts going back to even 1500 BC, and even before. Yes. So there are historical documents or pieces of literature. The question is, are those writings, do they have in them the characteristics of a historical piece or is it legendary or mythological? That's the question at that point. 
Uh, have I responded? Yes. Okay. All right, we will accept that, that there is a, a connection there. But his question was whether we had any other ancient documents and what are they, whether they are you know, dated. Yes, there are. But we will, we will, our focus, at least my focus was, not on the date necessarily by itself, but on the date of the document compared to the date of the event. That will be what will show whether it's close to the event, then it's more likely to be a historical piece of literature. And if it is really spread out, then I don't throw it out, but I say the credibility is a little less. Yes, sir. I'm not sure whether you want to focus on something. It's a huge topic. Old Testament. Yeah. You're, you're very right, because the ones that we had before what we found in the caves of Qumran was dated 1000 AD. And there was always the question, take a book of the Old Testament, how do we know that this manuscript that we have, which is dated AD 1000, actually is kind of the same thing that was written in BC? Or did it become corrupted as it came along? Because the gap was so huge. Now 1000 AD to say Isaiah's time is 15 to 1600 years. So we have no way of, of bridging that gap until the Dead Sea Scrolls came. The Dead Sea Scrolls are dated 157, around 157 to 257 BC, before the time of Christ. And if you look, for instance, one book that the scholars commonly comment on is the book of Isaiah, because it is found in complete detail in the Qumran caves. And you know something? It is exactly what you have in your hand today. 1,000 years, 1,200 years, the only changes they found were 11 small changes in the form of certain words or names. That is all the difference. Can you compare that with some more modern writings, like the plays of Shakespeare? 1800, there are 27 plays that Shakespeare wrote. Do you know that there are major challenges in every single one of those plays? And this is our day, as it were which when we had the printing press and everything. And those changes are not small, big paragraphs. Questioned whether this is exactly what he wrote or somebody stuck it in there. Compare that with the, with the, with the book of Isaiah. 1,200 years and all you could find was 11 little bitty changes, spelling or punctuation or the form of certain words, that's all. In other words, it is absolutely preserved. That's the other thing that we didn't look at. Once we finish this, what I usually go to the next set uh, presentation is, okay, they are good. 
but let me look at why people can be impressed with either the book or the man. And we look at the book and the man by themselves without comparing with anyone else. It still causes you to bow in reverence. The, 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 the characteristics are so compelling and, and gripping. Yes? So your question is? So when people talk about the uh, many different ways to a single destination, yes. talk about how the fact that you are whatever religion you are yes. is a large part of figment of where you are from. That's true. And then some people relate that to the fact that Christ said that there are other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and they yes. have to legitimize other religions or other I really have not heard that as legitimizing. I have heard that as a, as a concept, and I have heard that as a as a way to say, look, even though they're they believe something else, Christians believe that they can still be found in the kingdom of God because. Jesus is the light that lights every man. He doesn't light only Christians. Because you were not a Christian when he lighted you. <laughs> you have to be first a non-Christian to be lighted by the light of Christ. We are not born Christians. We are born again Christians. Nobody is born a Christian. There are, on, there are no second, third generation Christians. That's, a, that's an oxymoron. There are only first generation Christians and that's all there can ever be. You have to make an individual choice and everybody has to make that. Those who don't know his name have been given the light by this very compassionate and fair individual. And he will judge them in, in fairness. And when he's done his judging, every knee will bow and say, you were righteous in your judgment. Was there any other thing? We are close, yes, at the back. Well, that's a personal question, but <laughs> here's a confession. I was born into an Adventist home. Okay, but it makes actually zero difference when you really want to know what there is. So what if I was an admin? So what is a Hindu or whatever? The, the reasoning is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. I still ask that question as an Adventist. I mean, I had to put it away for a little while to become an inquirer. Is there a God in existence? Which Adventist asked that? You'll be asked to resign. <laughs> yeah, is there a God in existence? But let me tell you something. You go church after church, town after town, 
there are atheists in the Adventist church. They have a hard time believing. And I'm not calling them an atheist to just wipe them off. I'm saying, hey, look, I also was thinking the same way as you. I was supposed to answer, but when I answered, I knew in the back of my mind, I, I really don't believe, but I know what I'm supposed to say, so I'm saying it. And we do that all the time. Like I said, honesty is a small, very, very rare commodity. But once it comes to your, your, yourself, it, it really lifts you up to a place where you can look at what there is, not be ashamed to say, I don't know. And I say that many times in these uh, university lecture halls. I say, I don't know if you ask me something that's so hard. I don't know. And that's what gives the whole thing the credibility that it deserves. When you say, I don't know, or I'm not sure, and then you say something that you're sure of, what you're sure of becomes credible. But if you start saying, I know, when you don't know, then what you say you know also will become less credible. I think we've had a nice time, and I hope that uh, we can sometime meet. Please turn in your evaluations or whatever, and God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.